This morning, we're continuing our journey through John as we work our way through this series we've titled Living the Gospel. Last time we were in, yeah, last time we were in John 9 and looking at the blind man being given sight. This week, we're in John 13, 34 to 35. Now again, the book of John doesn't follow like the typical timeline. He wasn't particularly concerned with writing his book chronologically. He cared more about themes, which is fine. It's just important for us as readers today to recognize this about the book of John. And so today, our text takes place on what we would typically think of as the night Jesus was betrayed, the night in the upper room, the night of the Last Supper. Jesus has just washed his disciples' feet, and then he told them somewhat cryptically that he's going to die, and and then that he is going to be betrayed. And they don't want to hear this. This isn't something that they're, they're thrilled to, to, to receive, and, and they have a hard time believing it. But over their protesting voices, Jesus gives them the words in our text this morning, which again we find in John chapter 13, verses 34 to 35. If you have your Bibles with you, you are encouraged to read along. There should be a pew in the Bible right in front of you, if, if that's what you prefer. Or, if you'd like, you can just read along with the words that will be on the screen. We read the word of the Lord this morning, John 13, verses 34 to 35. A new command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Thus ends the reading. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you'd speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. I pray this in your name. Amen. The other day when Karen and I were looking for something to watch together after the kids had gone to bed, I saw that they had made a movie of a book I had read in my early years of high school. It was the first Christian book by author Francine Rivers. And as a young man, I would read the book in secret or like hide the cover because I was embarrassed to be reading a book titled Redeeming Love. Not the best thing for your reputation as a sophomore male in uh, 1998. I know, right? Now, that wasn't the cover when, when I was reading it, but that's, that's the cover I found on the interwebs, so that's the one we get today. Yeah. I'm glad I read it, though. I'm glad I read it. It's a great book. It, it takes place in the Old West, and I'm a sucker for Western, so that helped. I think that's how my mom sold it to me on the first, book, on the first place. Like, here, Daniel, just read this one. It's a Western. Okay, redeeming love. Like, what are we talking about here, Mom? Whatever. doesn't matter. It tackles some, some difficult, hard, and yet necessary topics. The book tells the story of Angel, a young girl who comes into the possession of a terrible, disgusting an abusive man. During her time with him, she learns what he calls God's truth, that no man ever cares for a woman. All he wants is what he can get from her. Eventually, Angel escapes this man. She journeys to California, a hardened, cynical, hurt, abused, and emotionally distant young woman. Once in California, she finds work in the only profession she believes she has any skill in. 
She's a very attractive, a very exclusive, high-priced escort at the fanciest brothel in town. It is in this town that Angel meets Michael. Michael is a farmer. He's straight-laced. He's steady. He's a Christian man, or at least in many ways, what we Christian men strive to be, hope to be. He's come to town to sell produce, and there he bumps into Angel, having no idea who she is. But as a plot mechanism, they are thrown together when Michael hears the Lord tell him that this is the woman he is to marry. This is a word that he accepts, that he trusts, that he believes. Understandably, Michael is in for a few shocks. He has no idea what Angel does for work. He has no idea how she has been treated, the abuse that she has suffered at the hands of many. He doesn't know about her cynicism and the host of walls she has put up emotionally to protect herself in the only ways that have been left to her. She initially laughs at him and his advances. She's annoyed by him. She is frustrated by him until one day when she has mouthed off to her employer one too many times and is thoroughly beaten by the employer's hired muscle. Michael finds her in an alley and asks her to marry him so that he can take care of her. And the poor woman mumbles, why not? Now I understand how like cheesy this can all sound. And a rough summary will, will do that sometimes. But I felt like I had to, to get you a bit of a picture of where the story was going and who the characters are before I get to the point that I'd like to make, the point that I believe relates to our text this morning. You see, Michael takes Angel home, and he treats her well, and he loves her, and he nurses her back to health from near death after the beating she had sustained. Because of her belief that men only care for women so that they can get what they want from them, she is distant and rude and belligerent. Because of her past and the experiences that she has had with so many men in her life, she doesn't even know how to respond to a man who treats her in the way that she should be treated. And it's during this time of Michael and Angel trying to figure out their relationship that we meet Michael's brother, Paul. Paul knows exactly who Angel is and what she did before she found her way onto Michael's farm and into his life. He can't believe that Michael knows who she is, and so he is convinced that Angel is pulling a fast one on his brother. That he should know better, or though he should know better, he treats Angel with the same contempt that she has come to expect from the men in her life. Though she's in a safe place, it isn't safe for her because there is someone here who will not let her past go. There is someone here who will not accept her as his brother's wife. It has been said that the church is not to be a museum for saints, but a hospital for sinners. And while I absolutely agree with the sentiment, I often wonder if we don't prefer the quiet, pristine halls of a museum to the loud, messy, sometimes frantic corridors of a hospital. Hospitals aren't necessarily a very comfortable place. People are tired there. They work long hours there. They put in or put in uncomfortable situations there. 
If you're working in a hospital, you can get someone's blood or other bodily fluids on you. You are meeting people in their most vulnerable. And that can be incredibly uncomfortable, especially if you might feel like you're in over your head as you try to comfort someone who is waiting for a specialist. A museum is quiet. Maybe a bit too solemn, but you don't have to worry about the mess or the headache. You walk around and enjoy the works that people have produced, the fabulous displays of their talent and dedication. Museums are much more comfortable. In some ways, it would be nice if the church was called to be a museum, but the reality is that we are not. And for that, we should be thankful. Because if we're honest with ourselves and with those around us, there really isn't much that we do that is worth hanging on the walls of a museum. Those standards are high. We know this. And so we know that if it is our goal to get our work displayed on a museum wall, we end up disappointed or depressed. For in a museum surrounded by fantastic displays, we are made uncomfortably aware of how far short we fall. And so, though we know as Christians that God wants us to be more like Christ, that God is continuing to make us and shape us to be more like Christ, we know that our works do not belong in a museum. Someday in heaven, sure. But today, right now, no. Right now, we aren't doing so hot. (laughs) Things... The things we know we're supposed to do, we aren't so very good at doing. The sin that we know we're supposed to avoid, that that pet sin that just keeps tempting us, has gotten harder and harder to resist. And in a moment of weakness or maybe a moment of self-seeking rebellion, we fail. We give into temptation and fall into sin. And now we're in the mess. We don't want this on the walls. We don't want where we find ourselves to be known by anyone, much less displayed for all to see. And so we find ourselves in need of a hospital for the broken. We find ourselves in need of healing, in need of compassion, in need of forgiveness. That's where the disciples found themselves in our text this morning. Right before this passage, Jesus had just finished washing their feet Now, some of us may like having our feet washed. I've never gotten a pedicure myself, but I can tell you, if I was to sit in one of those chairs right now, I would be incredibly uncomfortable and pretty embarrassed. Ain't nobody got to see what's going on with my feet. I don't always keep on top of of clipping my nails like I should. You know, they're rough. They're, They're a little gross. I've been running around chasing the kids in these things. They've been sweating in these shoes and the socks that I cover them up in. And and seriously, who has feet that look good? What was God thinking when he designed these things? Some of us have like middle toes that are longer than our big toes. It's, it's, It's not often that you see a symmetrical foot. Feet are weird, man. Like they're 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 just weird. But back then, back in the time of Jesus and the disciples, feet were not just awkward and and maybe a little nasty. They were straight up dirty. Everyone wore sandals and there wasn't really paved roads, maybe some rocks you could walk on, but, but mostly it was dust. Ever seen the bottom of a foot that's been tromping around in the dust all day? 
They get like dark and, and dirty. They're just totally filthy. It's gross. In a time that compared physical cleanliness to spiritual cleanliness, it was embarrassing to have such dirty feet. And here was Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. At one point, Peter wasn't having any of it. He didn't want Jesus to have to get into the muck of his life. He felt that Jesus was above that. Peter didn't want Jesus to debase himself by dealing with the embarrassing dirt in Peter's life on his feet. And to Jesus, and to this, Jesus responded to, Jesus, to Peter's refusal to let Jesus wash his feet. Jesus, Jesus responded, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Peter backed down immediately, letting Jesus wash his feet. And then it starts to get interesting. Because Jesus tells the disciples to wash each other's feet. And this makes them incredibly uncomfortable. Who wants someone else washing your feet? Who wants someone else to be aware of just how dirty you are? That, that, that's gross. It's embarrassing. That's uncomfortable. And so to help the disciples understand where he is going with this whole feet washing thing, Jesus gives them the words of our text this morning. A new command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus knows that he is leaving. He tells the disciples that he won't be with them for much longer, and so he gives them this commandment. It doesn't replace the other Ten Commandments. It is simply added to them. Jesus has done this before as well, as Julia read in Mark 12, 28 to 34. That Jesus is asked what the greatest of all the commandments is, and Jesus answers, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Now, in some ways, you could say that he says here in, what he says here in John is just kind of under what Jesus called the second greatest commandment, to, to love your neighbor as yourself. The second commandment speaks to how we are to interact with all people. We are to love our neighbors, our friends, people we like and people that we don't like, people we agree with and people that we don't. Everybody is made in the image of God, which is everyone from every race, culture, background, socioeconomic situation. Everyone everywhere is made in the image of God and is our neighbor and we are to love them. This new commandment that Jesus gives the disciples in our text this morning is a special reminder for the church to love the other people in the church. And we need that reminder sometimes, don't we? Sometimes we get caught thinking that the church is supposed to be a museum. We get caught looking for the good works of those we find within her walls and are shocked when we realize just how broken each of us truly is. As Christians, we should know better than to pursue the, the, the desires of the flesh. Yes, absolutely. Does knowing better stop us from falling? Absolutely not. And how about those like Angel in the book? How tempting it can be for us to be in the shoes of Paul. We see someone so broken, so hurt, so in need of healing, and instead of recognizing that we're in a hospital for the broken, we act like we're in a museum and we can't imagine putting the works of these sinners on the walls. And so instead of covering them in the grace and mercy that God has poured out over us, 
We keep them at arm's length and make them feel like they don't belong. Why do we do this? Partially because we feel like they make us look bad. We don't want people associating their sin and their failure with our church and faith. And we do this partially because we know that we're just as sinful as they are. We're just more experienced at hiding it. Or we've arranged it so that our sin is seen as more acceptable and we don't want or like the reminder of the depth of our own fallenness. How are we doing with this? How are we doing with loving our fellow Christians? How are we doing with loving those that don't share our doctrine completely? How are we doing with loving those that share our doctrine completely but have a personality that gets under our skin? How are we doing with Christians that are struggling in their sin? How are we doing with recognizing the brokenness of our own situations? How are we doing with loving Christians that say hurtful things to us? How are we doing with loving Christians we'd like to say hurtful things to? How are we doing with this? Now we need it. We may not like it, but we need it. We need to be reminded to love each other. We need to be reminded to have grace for each other. We need to be reminded that no matter what we have done or how we have failed, that God loves us, that God forgives us, that God pours out his mercy and his grace over us. And whether we like it or not, whether we understand why God set it up this way or not, the reality is that God's love for us is reflected in the love that we show to each other. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. As we strive to love each other well, as we recognize that our works are not to be displayed on the walls, but to be done for the benefit of our brothers and sisters in Christ, for the benefit of our neighbors, God's love is tangibly reflected, tangibly felt, tangibly seen here today. If Paul had loved Angel, he would have saved himself, Angel, and particularly Michael from so much hurt. But he couldn't do it. So when Angel decides to leave Michael to go back to her old life because she just can't grasp why Michael would love her, it has to be fake. He has to be trying to get something from her. And when she decides to leave him, Paul is more than happy to give her a ride away from the farm. She never should have been there in the first place, he reasons. What do you think that does to Michael? It doesn't stop his love, that's for sure. He goes after her, finding her, engaged in the fallen activities that he had saved her from. But even that does not stop him from loving her and bringing her back to his farm, bringing his wife home. Eventually, the care and patience, respect and love that Michael shows Angel begins to chip away at the walls that she has set up. She even begins to find that she has feelings for him. And then a neighbor woman stops by. Michael is friendly with her, not inappropriately, but when the two laugh together, Angel's insecurities rise to the surface. Michael should be with someone like this lady, not someone like her. And as her doubts and fears and insecurities mount, Angel leaves again. But Michael is not dissuaded. 
He continues to pursue his wife. He does not give up on her. And as their story comes to a close, Angel and Michael are living together on his farm. She has finally understood that her abuser's understanding of God's truth is a lie. Not every man only cares for her because of what he can get from her. The story of Angel and Michael is a true one. Though Angel and Michael are fictional, the book tells of their relationship, or the book that tells of their relationship was based on the life of the prophet Hosea. God told him to marry a prostitute, and so he did. Some mocked him, some ridiculed him, some told him he was mad, but though at the time he didn't know why God would have him marry Gomer, he found that he loved her deeply. And so it hurt deeply when she left him again and again to return to the life that he had saved her from. It burned him up when she left his love and respect and tender care to return to the life that she had been saved from. When she would return to be abused by the hands of other men. Why would God have Hosea do this? Because the story of Angel and Michael and Hosea and Gomer is also the story of God and us. Through this story, God is showing us how much he loves us. He has saved us from the sin that has trapped us. Sinfulness doesn't take good care of us. Sinfulness abuses us. It it uses us. The sin that we get stuck in isn't edifying. It's destructive. It feels good while we're participating in it, but it leaves hurt and scars in its wake. But no matter how much we have sinned, it does not dampen or dim the light of God's love for us. And so to save us from ourselves, to save us from the brokenness that we have embraced, that we have become trapped in, God sent us Jesus. He sent us his Son. Jesus, being God and being perfect, was uncontaminated by sin. It never touched him. He he lived in the same conditions that we do, faced all the same temptations that we do. But where we fall and fail, he never gave in. He stayed true. He held firm to the desires of God, the will of God, the demands of God, something we in our sinfulness could never do. No, it was our sinfulness. It was our sinfulness that touched him, that brought him down. Out of jealousy, anger, spite, insecurity, and pride, Jesus was betrayed and suffered a rigged trial where he was condemned to die a death he did not deserve. And while it was the sinful machinations of man that put Jesus Christ on the cross, it was also the will of God. For it was God's will that through Jesus the world, all people, would be reconciled to him. And so as Jesus carried the cross, the instrument of his death, up the hill to Golgotha, the place called the skull, he was weighed down, not just by the heavy pieces of timber, but by the weight of the sins of the world. Your sin, my sin, all sin that has ever been committed was put upon his shoulders and there on the cross, the perfect one, the Son of God, Jesus, became sin for us. He took our sin upon himself. All the times we've fallen short, all the things that embarrass us and bring us shame, our feet. He took all of them upon himself, and there on the cross he died for them. He paid the price that we had no hope or ability to pay, the perfect one surrendering his life for the sake, for the benefit, out of love, for the imperfect. But Jesus did not stay dead. 
Three days later, he rose from the grave, defeating sin and death. And when we believe in him, when we trust in him and his work on the cross, when that is our hope, when that is where we put our faith, then we are reconciled to God. When we admit that it is not our works, but the works of Christ on our behalf that bring us into relationship with God, then we are called sons and daughters of God. Then we are the bride of Christ. And like Angel, though we have struggles that haunt us still, though we sometimes ditch the farm and run back to the life we left, Jesus does not stop chasing after us. He pursues us, he chases us, he walks with us, constantly calling us back to the farm, back to him. I don't know where you are in your relationship with the Lord this morning. Maybe your angel in the brothel and this Michael dude keeps showing up and you can't figure out why he'd have any interest in you. Maybe you've been living on the farm for a while but just ran back into town, back to the old life and were caught red-handed by the one you've betrayed. Maybe you've been on the farm for a while but the calls of the old life are ringing stronger and stronger in your head. Maybe your insecurities are reminding you that you don't deserve this life, that you don't deserve this grace, that you don't deserve this love that has been given to you. Maybe you feel like you've been living on the farm for long enough to know that you should have some works to hang in a museum. Maybe you're tired, worn out, beaten down, and recognizing that you're exactly where you need to be, in a hospital for the broken wherever you are. Know or remember that God, the love that God has for you. Know that he could not love you more than he does right now and he will never love you less. Know that he is pursuing you. If you have never had a relationship with him, that will not stop him from loving you and calling you. If you have betrayed the relationship you have with him, and fallen back into the sin that he has called you from, know that he is still pursuing you. Know that your sin will not dissuade him. He is coming for you, not in anger, but in love. Turn to him, repent, and be forgiven. None of us deserve this love of God. None of us have works that deserve to be hung in museum halls. We are all patients in the hospital for the broken. But our doctor is the one who can truly heal. May his love for us be reflected in the way we love each other. Let us not see each other as the broken sinners we are, but as the bride of Christ. This is how God sees us. This is how our Savior sees us. This is living in the gospel. This is living in the good news that we do not deserve and can never earn the love and favor of God, but that his love and favor have been given to us, showered over us anyway. Rest in that, church. Rest in what Christ has done for you. What a fantastic, loving, gracious, and merciful God we serve. Amen.